Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of our interview with Charles Hudson on getting smart on a new market. On today's episode, we cover questions including, how do you look at companies addressing industries where the incumbent product offerings are free? Businesses like Slack that were replacing free options. Then we discuss, quote unquote, fresh eyes and how Charles has written about how he doesn't look at decks before first meeting with an entrepreneur. And we ask him the key reasons why he takes meetings without reviewing a deck first. We also talk him about evaluation of startups that are pre-traction and what he looks for and why. Then in the spirit of continuous improvement, we talk about his thoughts on how one can learn and improve once they have a job in venture capital. And we round out the discussion with some really good insights from Charles on how to develop a thesis and how to look at new markets that may seem compelling, but require a deeper dive. Before we jump into part two, in part one, I had mentioned our recent investment in regroup therapy. And already I've received a few emails from listeners asking how I originally sourced the deal. Well, this was one that was in my own backyard here in Chicago, and I'd love to say that I met with them in person early on. That was not the case. The truth is that Seth Hall, a listener and active angel investor based in France, pinged me about the startup. He was a major investor in their angel round and has been their biggest advocate as they've grown and pursued their first institutional round. Fortunately, I've known the folks at Hyde Park Angels and OCA Ventures for some time now, so it was easy for us to get comfortable with the existing set of high-quality investors. And after Seth introduced me to the founder, David, we were very bullish on the team and the opportunity, and we were able to move forward a few weeks thereafter. My wife even weighed in on this one as she works in the sector, behavioral mental health, so I had even more fun than usual using her as my subject matter expert during evaluation. So a big thanks to Seth for connecting us with Regroup. And certainly, if you have any questions you ever want to ask or deal flow that you'd like us to take a look at, don't hesitate to send them my way. I'll try to do a better job going forward about answering any Q&A that I receive right here on the podcast. That said, let's pick up where we left off with part two of the interview with Charles Hudson. You know, you mentioned earlier that you prioritize market structure over TAM. Um, yeah. And TAM is typically a function of price and volume. If the product is this fuzzy thing that's 
maybe less important than the team and the market. You know, how do you assess the the TAM, especially in a nascent market that that doesn't yes. yet exist? That's so hard. Like, I, I don't. I wish I could tell you. Like I have a really grand theory. <laughs> I mean, but I guess I start with I start with one of the big questions. Is like, are people already spending money against this problem today? And there's some problems where the answer is is yes. And then I always ask myself, if to the extent that the answer is yes, how does the way and amount of money that people are spending against this today map to what the company plans to do? Because there's some companies where you know, their plan is to radically reduce costs by a factor of 10. And they'll show me, hey, it's a billion-dollar market today. I'm like, okay, so you're trying to take it to $100 million then. And I think sometimes founders don't always connect the dots between the reason that TAM is high is because the competitor's solution is more expensive and that you replacing them will actually shrink the TAM. Yeah. But I also look at not just like, is there money being spent, but are the leading companies healthy, good gross margin businesses. So like the, the TAM for grocery stores is enormous. The gross margins for running a grocery store, unless it's Whole Foods, are like not amazing. Interesting. And so versus the TAM, I mean, look, Workday, Salesforce, Marketo, Oracle, we're talking about 70% gross margin businesses. Pretty good businesses to be in at scale. And big TAMs. So I'm always trying to ask myself like, if this company is successful, what does the world look like when they're successful? Is it a lot more? Are they going to fundamentally bring a bunch of new consumers to the market? And like this is about non-consumption. And so the current TAM isn't that relevant because their whole belief is that they're going to bring in some new people who have been on the, the sidelines of the market. Or is it that they're going to reallocate sort of some of the gross margin that's kept by this, the surplus that's kept by the producer and reallocate it to the consumer. Because I think all of those things, if you kind of pull on those threads long enough, you eventually get to an answer. Right, right. And my, my, my TAM answers are usually, this feels like it's going to be a really big market because I can envision a lot of people paying a reasonable price for this product in the future. Not so much, I think it's going to be $250 million in revenue in the next five to seven years. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I get that, and I, I love the example of looking at established, healthy companies in the area and if they have uh, attractive gross margin profiles. But what about like what about a a company like Slack? You know, prior to Slack, I know that when when I worked in a corporate environment, we used Yahoo Instant Messenger for direct yep. messaging, and we used email for all other communication, and both of those tools were free. So, so how do you look at that? You know, a company that's that arguably is bringing significant value, but into a marketplace where the incumbents or the established technologies are free. I think that's super hard. And so, I'll say two things about that. One, I think one of the hardest things to do as an investor is to put aside previous experiences and approach a problem with fresh eyes. And I think if you'd said no to every other enterprise messaging company out there, except for Slack, you probably are feeling pretty good about yourself <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Slack has been, and maybe I'd say, you know, HipChat as part of Atlassian has, has done really well. But for the most part, like being skeptical on that space was right. But I think if you ask yourself like, well, what would it take? Like, what would it probably take to get 
enterprises to pay for this. Well, one, it'd have to be a product that you could get into the hands of developers and consumers easily. So it has to have low-cost distribution. The price per user has to be pretty cheap. And there has to be some compelling reason why you as a company would upgrade to a paid version. And I think for most companies, it's kind of security, audit, logging, like those things matter. And conveniently or diabolically for Slack, however you want to think about it, the more people you have in your company using the product, the more value the security and enterprise features have for you. And so I'm not entirely sure what it is about Slack that made people so ready for the product. You could argue, hey, it was things like Yammer and Chatter before that had kind of gotten people used to the idea of this lightweight corporate communication. We could maybe go all the way back to AIM and those instant messaging products, which you know, by and large are not well supported anymore. And that maybe had those products continued to be supported or the companies behind those products continued to invest in them. Mm-hmm. But I think you could trace the behavior patterns all the way back to there. And maybe the time was just right in a post, post-Yammer, post-Slack, post-Facebook, post-Twitter world. Right. Where people said, hey, this is the way I communicate in my personal life. Why not have and in a world where email just feels like completely oppressive? Maybe this was just the right time to have an enterprise communication product, particularly if you think about developers who were some of the early advocates. They tend to be people who, in my experience, like email the least. Business people like me tend to like email. And so it's not surprising to me that a lot of my early adopter friends who got on, got on Slack were um, developers. And they were able to connect things like GitHub and Stripe that they care about into their Slack channels. But if you told me, hey, we're going to build this communications platform for businesses, it's going to integrate with a bunch of other services you use, and we're going to charge companies based on usage, I would say that sounds like a perfectly reasonable idea that many people have tried before and have failed. Yeah. And so what is it about the context now that makes this the right time? And it's so hard as, a, as an investor sometimes to put aside previous experience because you definitely don't want to recreate the same mistake that you've done before because it's really painful to be like, yeah, you know, I kind of knew that that's typically what happens with these kind of startups and I just kind of invested in another one and I feel <laughs> like it's going to end exactly the same way. So clearly I didn't learn anything. Chasing. Yep. To your point earlier, why not two years ago? Why not two years from now? Context is everything. Yeah, and it's so, and it's, you know, I will say like the, a lot of the investors I admire the most, they have this, I don't even know if they can put it in words, they just have this feeling or this, this accumulated set of experience that makes them particularly good at making assessments on timing. They just seem like to be very, very good at, and I'd say, you know, the best of the best people I know, you get the combination of, timing and they have enough access to good entrepreneurial teams that they find the right team at the right time. And that's just, I think that's a really durable competitive advantage in venture. If you can get really good at doing that, you can stay in this business and be successful for a really long time. So you made a point about looking at markets with fresh eyes and uh, you've written about in the past about how you don't look at decks before the first meeting with an entrepreneur. Yeah. By the way, side note, 
I am completely addicted to your blog. <laughs> you have, oh, thank you. I need to do more writing. I've you been, should. You got to get back on. <laughs> it's coming. I've got. I'm, I'm building up a backlog of posts, so they they are coming. Um, yeah, I don't know the whole Dex thing. It's one of those things that sometimes you say things that just seem obvious to you, and other people tend to bristle. I think in venture, there's this theory that you know you have to see the deck first because because you, you know was one person told me the ability to put together a good deck is indicative of some familiarity with the fundraising process. And I okay. think a lot of people use the, the presence or existence of a deck as a qualifier. Like, hey, if you can't even put a deck together, why should I take a meeting? I think that's totally fair. Mm-hmm. If your principal objective is to filter out people who you deem to be unserious from your calendar. Totally fair. What I learned is, I don't know about you, Nick, like I've never been in a meeting with a, a vendor or I've never bumped into someone on the subway and then said, hey, before we start this conversation, let me pull a deck and walk you through it, right? Like if you're at a dinner party and someone asks you, hey, what do you do? You don't say, hold on. Before, let me, rather than tell you, let me pull up this deck on my phone and flip you through it. And I haven't so, done that one, no. Yeah, and so the reason I don't get too excess, obsessed about decks is, one, I just know myself. And if you send me a deck, I'm going to read it. And I'm going to reach some conclusions based on the way that the information is presented. I'm going to come into the conversation kind of locked and loaded on a couple of things. And sometimes being so fixated on one or two topics that I saw the deck, it blinds me from paying attention to what the founder is actually saying in the meeting. Because I'm just waiting to get to the customer acquisition slide because that's the one where I have a bunch of questions because I read the deck before. Mm -hmm. So it inhibits listening. Two, I tend to judge the business without the benefit of the founder narrative. And not every deck tells you the whole story. And I find the good ones intentionally create gaps in the narrative because they don't want to give the whole thing away. And third, and more importantly than that, to me, the ability for someone to tell a stranger who's unfamiliar with their product or service about it in a conversational way without the aid of a visual crutch is actually something a good founder does a hundred times a week. You're pitching candidates, you're bumping into people at lunch. Like a good founder is always recruiting new investors and is always recruiting new employees. And most of those interactions are unplanned and casual. And I think the better, if you're at dinner with a candidate and you're trying to close them, and they've got a bunch of questions about the business. Again, you can't pull out, you can't rely on the, the deck as the thing that will sell them. So I'm very interested in founders who I think are good storytellers and who I think can weave together a narrative and who I think can have a conversation around the business that doesn't need a visual aid because a lot of life doesn't give you that opportunity. Uh, the last thing is I've just found not requiring a deck. It allows me to meet with people who are not maybe as far along in fleshing out every element of the business. And I'm okay with that. And candidly, sometimes those meetings are really bad. (laughs) And sometimes I meet with someone, I'm like, wow, you're really not as far along in thinking this out, thinking this through as I'd thought you were. Had I sort of slightly raised the cost of you getting on my calendar, I probably wouldn't be in this meeting right now. To me, that's okay. It's a question of like, well, what, what scares you more? Spending time in the occasional meeting that's not productive or missing out on someone who's maybe the chance to build a relationship with someone who's not as far along because they don't have all the materials that, that tick the boxes for you. 
Sure. So when I say like I don't need to see a deck, it's like I'm I'm willing to meet with people who are still wrestling with kind of the core things in their business. Yeah, you're the first person I've met that doesn't look at the deck or at least publicly says they don't look for a deck pre-meeting, but I don't either. And yeah. it was based on something you said. I, I view it as either a crutch or a tool. Yep. And the first time that I meet someone, I want to hear it because they're yep. they're going to have to sell their business to everybody, every stakeholder, and they need to be able to do it without the crutch. And if you can get to the second meeting, then I think the deck can serve as a good tool to to transmit a lot of information about some relevant pieces, but without the sales, without that elevator pitch that really compels me to want to learn more, it's just not worth it for me to try and comb, comb through a deck and try and understand what they're getting at. Yeah. And I, what I usually tell people is I certainly don't want to take a meeting where 10 minutes in, I go, Hey, we got to stop because I have a company that's in conflict with what you're doing. Or I've looked at this space 50 times and like, I've never gotten to a yes. I can usually accomplish that with just a brief paragraph. Like, hey, kind of just tell me what you're doing and like what you're working on in like five or six sentences over email so that I can make sure that I'm not going to put us both in an awkward position by agreeing to a meeting where I quickly realize that, geez, you know, like I've got something in the portfolio that's a little too close for comfort relative to what you're building. Yep. And that's for me, like the, the main knockout. But I, I also just think I have a higher tolerance for um, meetings that maybe don't go anywhere <laughs> than some <laughs> of my peers. And I just feel like I would much rather meet interesting people earlier in their journey. And I'm willing to accept that some portion of the things I have probably in my calendar could have been filtered out with a with a more rigorous um, kind of get a meeting criteria. But the more rigorous the filter, it influences how approachable you are. And my goal is to invest in people at the first stage. And the, the, the less experience they have with the fundraising process, oftentimes the more raw that first presentation of the business might be. Yep. Love the focus, concise emails from entrepreneurs with yeah. a couple sentences on what they're doing and get me interested enough to ask for a deck. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Charles, I want to ask you a little bit about pre-traction startups. Yeah. So, you know, startup comes to you, no traction, early stage. Uh, what do you look for and why? Boy, it's so hard. So one thing I always ask myself is like, is there a good reason why this company doesn't have any traction? For hardware companies, I think it's easier because oftentimes like the, the physical manifestation of the product, like it just doesn't exist. Like no one's like, there, there is no product to buy or use yet. Yeah. So that kind of puts that to the side. But sometimes I'll look at a business and say, okay, what's the logical leap here? Like, is this something that's so abstract and hard to imagine that even if it existed today, I'd still have the concerns about whether anybody would use it? Or is this a product category where I'm pretty convinced that there's some level of endemic demand for the product? And the real question is, can this company capture it? So for software companies, this is something I've thought for a long time and I haven't really shared with many people. I think most things in software can be built. Now, maybe some of the weird deep learning, AI kind of things, like maybe those can't be built. But if you named a B2B enterprise software category and you told me what the product is, like I think most things in software can be built. Sure. So real, the real risk isn't like, can it be built? The real risk is, hey, can the team that's been assembled before me, can they build it? Execution. 
So that, that's one. And do they have a proven track record of building stuff? I think number two, and this goes back to market structure, relative to where the industry is, what does meaningful traction look like? So I think if you're, again, if you're building a brand new CRM company, you should have customers pretty quickly because it's a known category with lots of buyers. And you should be able to pretty quickly get to the point where people are using and paying for the software that, you, that you're building. Like that to me doesn't seem like an, an inappropriate ask or expectation. However, if you're in a brand new category, particularly for consumer-facing social apps, oftentimes you have no idea whether anybody will use it and there is no good analog for the product. And so I think for me, for hardware, there is legitimate questions as to like whether the products can occasionally be built or manufactured at a cost and scale that will appeal to consumers. That's a reasonable thing to ask of a hardware company. So that's one. I think the second thing is always relative to where the company is, do I think that they have reasonable expectations for how much money they want to raise and the terms at which they want to raise it? And that's kind of a squishy topic. And so sometimes I'll meet people who go, hey, we want to raise 750K to finish our prototype, get it in the hands of our first five customers, and we're willing to to do that at a valuation that reflects the fact that this is an unproven concept. And I think we're at this weird moment in the venture capital market where almost everyone I know would much rather pay up for something that they know works than take a bet on something that hasn't been built and doesn't work. And so I think we're in this really strange world where, at least in my opinion, People place a lot of weight on traction and perhaps even overvalue traction. And when people are so terrified of backing a company that doesn't end up being the winner, that maybe they apply too great of a discount to pre-traction. For my model, that's great if that's the way that the world actually works. Interesting. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Just to transition a little bit, um, in the spirit of continuous improvement, what are your thoughts on how one can learn and improve as a venture capitalist, maybe from your standpoint and or also from someone new to venture capital? So I'll say that there's, I think, the obvious things to do, you know, get mentors, 
surround yourself with people who've been doing this longer than you have and have been doing it well for longer than you have and, and try to learn from them. I'm a big believer in taking notes because I think it's very easy to engage in revisionist history and venture. And sometimes you'll say like, well, why did I pass on that company? And if you try to reconstruct it at the time that you know it was successful, it's very easy to tell yourself a self-serving narrative. But if you kind of take notes along the way when you see things, I think it's a really good way to get better and identify your own blind spots. So, for example, one thing that I do is whenever I go to Y Combinator Demo Day, every year I go, I take copious notes on the companies that I, I saw and which ones I liked and my initial impressions of them. And granted, these are not very long pitches. And every year when I go back, I look at the notes from the previous two years and I ask myself kind of the same two questions. Which companies that I thought were amazing and interesting turned out to be amazing and interesting or turned out to not be amazing and interesting? So how did the ones that I liked, how did that, how did that pool perform? And what are the ones that I missed and why? And for me, it's just a good mind state to go into like YC demo day with is that like historically, like what I've realized is for a long time, the developer facing things were not companies and products that I particularly understood very well. And so I tended to not have strong opinions on those. And so I think the good news is if you're at, a, at an active venture capital firm, you're going to meet hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurial teams over the course of the year. And you're going to make a bunch of decisions on them and you're going to form conclusions. And if you're good at documenting your own thought process and being reflective, you can go back and with the sample size of two or 3,000 companies and, and interactions, you can recreate patterns. Any other final thoughts on uh, the topic today or, or other things uh, related to, to investing in startups? I'll tell you one thing I was thinking about was just like, well, what are some of my like greatest misses or things that I regret sort of having not invested in? I really wish I'd invested in every single person from my business school class who started a startup. Because, <laughs> um, there, there are some patterns that I think, uh, I think with, even within rules, there's freedom. And, and I think one area where I've been giving myself a bit more freedom in, in my new fund is there's a certain class or set of people that I've known for a really long time who I think they just have a knack for figuring it out. And I would never want to construct a portfolio that was 100% composed of them. But to pass on them because they don't have everything figured out, they have a track record of going from kind of murky, fuzzy to fully formed in pretty rapid succession. And, you know, that includes like the founders of Trulia and some other like really successful, interesting internet tech and even non-tech companies. And I think occasionally you tap into wells of really talented people and having a different bar or process for funding them is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Very cool. So Charles, if we could address any topic related to startups or venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? You know, I really think a great person to talk to would be Bryce Roberts from NDVC, who used to be at O'Reilly Alpha Tech. And just talking about the alternative path to the raise a bunch of money, high growth venture model, because it doesn't work for every single business. And more importantly, 
it doesn't fit the cultural context of every founder. And I think he's got a really interesting, you know, set of theses and thoughts around that topic. Awesome. And then Charles, uh, what startup investor has inspired you and influenced you most and why? There's quite a few. If I could pick two, I'd probably say Chris Dixon is high on my list just because he seems to have a really good sense of that intersection of timing and special teams and areas that seem wonky, weird, undeveloped, or too hard. He seems to have a really good nose for picking those out and and making them and getting the right teams at the right time to build the right companies. So I really admire him. The other person is kind of, for, for really different reasons, it's actually Michael Deering from Harrison Metal, who I just think is super thoughtful about people and about the founders he backs and what it really means to support them. And I've just been really impressed by the depth of attachment and affinity the founders he's backed have for him when it comes to two, three, four startups later, how they still kind of have a strong, I think, personal connection and warm feeling toward the time that they spent with them, regardless of the outcome of that startup. And I think if you can cultivate that in the people that you back and support as a VC, that's a, that's a really big deal. And finally, uh, Charles, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Um, they can always hit me on email, charles at precursorvc.com, or I'm on Twitter most of the day too, and, and actually interact with a fair number of people I don't know that way too. I will have a website up soon. It's under development, <laughs> but it's just not done yet. <laughs> awesome. Well, awesome. Thank, thanks again for making the time here. Hey. Like I said before, your blog has been very inspirational to me, and I've been admiring from afar for some time. So really appreciate you doing this interview and uh, look forward to more. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure, Nick. Take care. Such a great conversation there with Charles. I had a real tough time limiting the key takeaways to three. So I decided to pick takeaways specifically related to the topic, although clearly there were many more wise lessons than just these. Key takeaway number one is called market structure over market size. The three things that Charles looks at with a new market are number one, the market structure, number two, the high-level economics of the business at scale, and number three, the relevance and timing of the opportunity. What Charles summed up as, quote, is the world bending in the direction that these founders want to go? First, Charles attempts to pick apart the market and look for all the factors that make for a good market versus a bad one. He asks the question, what is the market going to look like at scale? Is this a winner-take-all market at scale? Where the steady state is that the market leader will get a disproportionate share of the outcome. Are there network effects? Are there structural reasons why everybody, consumers and service providers, should be on one platform? With a majority critical mass of users, are there tremendous benefits to the greater network of users? As more users are acquired, do the benefits increase for all users on the platform? When all are on one platform, the benefits can include things like more liquidity, the lowest search costs, and the lowest transaction costs for both sides. 
He did mention that there are cases where the constituents in a market would not like one monopolistic provider. But there are some markets where the steady state is going to have one large winner. Key takeaway number two is called fragmented versus consolidated markets. Charles went on to describe markets that are really fragmented. He brought up the example of Salesforce and how many assume that they own a majority of the market when, in fact, they have about 20% of the CRM market. In these cases, it can be really hard to build a standardized product that can serve the needs of all customers. This is where we talked about the degree of homogeneity of the customer base. If customer needs are very heterogeneous, it is going to be very difficult to develop a solution that serves all and also to sell that solution in a scalable way. His final point here is that he doesn't like competing with large majority share incumbents in their home markets. He wouldn't want to compete with Google and search or back in the 90s with Microsoft in productivity apps. If you compete with the biggest in their core market, you're going to get their best punch and their best people are working to defend the core. In these cases, a startup must have a differentiated approach toward go-to-market relative to the incumbent. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called nascent market TAM. Charles starts with the question, are people already spending money against this problem today? Then he looks to see how current spending habits map to new spending habits with the startup's offering. And one of the watchouts here are companies looking to radically reduce costs. If they're playing in a billion-dollar market and they plan to reduce costs by a factor of 10, then the market will shrink to 100 million. Then he looks to see if leading companies are healthy, good, gross-margin businesses. There are plenty of verticals with massive TAMs, but razor-thin margins like retail grocery. And he also thinks about whether a whole new group of users will be brought into a market. Is the question one of non-consumption? If so, the TAM may not be relevant. Or does the startup plan to reallocate surplus from one level in the value chain to another? In that case, the current TAM will be much different than the eventual market size. And his final point here is that he's not using TAM to calculate an exact market amount or revenue amount that will be achieved in the coming years. Rather, at the macro level, does he see a large number of customers that will be willing to pay a high price? It's really just that simple. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called the customer volume value curve. We've spoken a lot in the past about companies that receive more benefit as they increase their customer base and customers become more active. Companies like LinkedIn, Netflix, Twitter, all increase the value that users receive as the user base itself increases. But today, in a simple and direct manner, Charles took it a step further and talked about something I'm choosing to call the customer volume value curve. The example we discussed was Slack, and how in a smart but maybe even diabolical way, they are set up so that the more customers using the platform, the more value is created for the users and for the enterprise. So not only does the value for the community of users increase, but the value for the payers does as well. In this case, the more people Slack has using the product, the more value the paid features have for the enterprise. In most cases, it seems that this value is more of a linear relationship. 
The more users a social network has, the more ads they can sell. The volume side of the equation is most critical here. We know how much money we can make per user, so how do we get more users? The below graph depicts the case for most businesses where volume of customers does not impact the price that can be charged per customer. And for all you listeners out there, I will include three sets of graphs. So each set includes two graphs. On the left will be a graph that shows the relationship between the volume of users and the dollars you can charge per user. So volume on the y-axis, dollars per user on the x-axis. And the graph right next to that one will still have volume on the y-axis, but now the x-axis is going to be the total revenue received for the company. Very high-level macro graphs that depict the relationship between volume and dollars that we're describing here. So the first graph is just a linear relationship. Volume doesn't impact price per user whatsoever. So while the company makes more revenue, as they increase their number of users, they do not make more revenue per user. But what if the more users they did acquire, the more they could charge for every ad click? What if as volume increases, price increases as well? Here the curve starts to look less linear and more exponential. So the graphs depicted in this scenario on the left shows a linear relationship between the dollars per user and the volume. So as you get more users, you can actually charge more money for each individual user. And then the graph on the right shows total revenue by volume of users. So this is where the exponential effect comes in. Because you're making more dollars per user, you have an exponential total revenue effect. So moving on to the last set of graphs, on top of that, Slack has taken this all a step further. With step change increases, on top of the exponential curve relationship. In addition to the main paid service of security, they have other incremental paid features that also increase their necessity as the user base increases. So once a company has a certain number of users on Slack, the CSO ponies up for paid security. Then based on the extensive usage and conversation history, the CIO adds storage and searchability. Finally, Individual departments may purchase integrations between Slack and other value-added services, like the example Charles mentioned of GitHub integration for developers. Now the graph starts to look even more interesting, and the graphs I have depicted in this section show not only an exponential curve relationship, but also step-up increases at various places along the exponential curve as these incremental revenue sources are added. As I reflect on the customer volume value curves, I realize that every business cannot be set up to take advantage of these economics. But there are two questions here that I think are relevant for every new business. Number one, will your users receive more value over time? And number two, do your payers need more value over time? If the answer is yes, then the company is set up to share in and accelerate that value. This is likely why SaaS companies have become so popular amongst investors. Their business model and product delivery is set up in a way to allow for ongoing value creation. Remember, the more value one can offer, the more one may receive in return. That will wrap things up for today. 
remember to head over to AngelList and back New Stack Ventures. If you want to see some really exciting new startups and partner with some of the smartest angels around, we've been really fortunate to amass a group of folks that are sharing exceptional deal flow and contributing far more than just capital with their insights and connections. Okay, until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.